All right, thank you for joining me in that prayer. Um, did not focus heavily on ministers of the area this evening. Perhaps we'll do that next time around as there are great needs there also. It's a blessing to be able to pray for missionaries and to lift up their needs um, to the Lord. I invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. As I mentioned a few moments ago, this morning as we were talking about the nature of the Incarnation, we spent a great deal of time focusing upon the reality, the spiritual reality of light coming into the world, of Jesus as our Savior. Of course, those of you that were at the nursing home, which I think is most of you, um, got to hear that as well, that focal point on Jesus as Savior. But naturally, and as we've seen uh, throughout the day, as we spoke of in our Sunday school hour, there's also an element of Jesus Christ coming, not just as Savior, but as King. Right? Jesus Christ came, and when He came, He came to be the Savior of the world, but He came as the fulfillment of the kingdom prophecies. He came to be that Messiah, that great King. We have tremendous opportunity within this season to carefully consider the promises of the kingdom in relation to the first advent of our Lord. And what we find as we study is just how important the promises of the millennial kingdom are and were to the nature of Jesus' first coming when he was born in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. This is why Herod was so concerned, right? This is why those wise men took that long journey to find him, because he was and would be the king. And that's what we are going to explore in our time together this evening, the first advent of the king. You're there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. The Bible says this in verses 18 through 21. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. You're familiar with the account. Mary and Joseph are to be married when it is revealed that Mary is with child. She's been told that she was chosen to be the woman through whom Messiah would come. Well, Joseph now has a decision to make, right? By any normal physical standard, Mary has committed adultery. He intends to put her away, but to do so in a manner that would be least distressing to Mary herself. And as he considers his options, the Lord appears unto Joseph in a dream and tells him to take Mary as his wife, that the child conceived in her was conceived of the Holy Ghost, and that therefore Mary would bring forth a son who was to be called Jesus. Now, Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, right? And Joshua is a name which means Jehovah is salvation. And he was to be called this because, as the scriptures say, he shall save his people from their sins. Now, this promise is 
a decidedly messianic promise, right? It's a, a, a decided promise that reflects upon the nature of God's promises to Israel as it relates to that chosen one, that one who would redeem, that one who is called Messiah, in Daniel at least. God had promised throughout the Old Testament that there was coming a day when the nation would be delivered from their sins. God would promise to the nation in the days of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 29. For I will take you from among, all, from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries, and I will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols, will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and ye shall be my people and I will be your God. I will also save you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the corn and will increase it and lay no famine upon you. Skipping to verse 33. Thus saith the Lord God, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities and the wastes shall be builded. Now this is just one of any number of Old Testament passages reflecting this principle. Of course, we saw it when we walked through Jeremiah. Right? We saw it in Jeremiah 31, 32, 33, the promises of the new covenant, all of the opportunities that would be presented there. We saw these realities. We saw it this morning uh, in a lesser degree with the passage we were in, in Isaiah, but it's very present in Isaiah as well. To this end, the promises of salvation to the nation of Israel, the promises of the kingdom which would come in which the land would be theirs and God would rule over it himself and they would be restored and rebuilded were throughout. And so we understand that for Jesus to be the one who would save his people from their sins, for Jesus to be the one who would be, as we regarded this morning, Emmanuel, God with us, means Jesus has to be this one, right? He has to be the Messiah. He has to be the chosen of God. And as we continue in the text of Matthew, we see the connection drawn directly to the prophetic importance of this child. Verses 22 and 23 tells us this. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Matthew links the message of the Lord to Joseph that he's giving to Joseph here with a promise that God had given through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. And Isaiah 7.14 tells us this, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. There's a promise here of tremendous importance at a very difficult time in Judah's history. The promise was given in the days of King Ahaz as he was struggling to believe the Lord that the Lord would give them hope and restoration. And that is exactly what this child would represent. Emmanuel, literally meaning God with us, would bring hope unto salvation for the land. For God himself had come to be with man and he would save his people from their sins. And his coming would be unmistakable because he would be born of a virgin. And this is what we read in Matthew 1. So we find 
that Jesus is fulfilling the qualifications of this one who would be Savior. And we find a very brief description then in Matthew of Jesus' actual birth. It's very, very brief in the Matthew account, verses 24 and 25. The Bible says that Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife. And he knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph did what he was bidden. He takes Mary to be his wife. Now, from Matthew, we learn almost nothing of Jesus' birth proper, right? This is all we learn of Jesus' birth from Matthew, except that Mary brought forth her firstborn son, that they called his name Jesus. The particulars of Jesus' birth, we have to go to Luke, which is the historical, the chronological um, account to, to glean. Uh, Matthew did not see fit. He did not feel it necessary to prove his purpose to necessarily bring about all of the, the direct accounts of Jesus' birth. The particulars, the Bible tells us, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, remained there throughout the days of Mary's purification, after which they went to Jerusalem to perform the law's requirement, all of the things we spoke of this morning. So we read in Luke chapter 2, verses 39 and 40, And when they had performed all the things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And so we, we skip to the end of that narrative for our purposes this evening. We find some two months after Jesus is born, the family is back living in Nazareth. There's those 40 days of purification, then the events that took place in the temple, and then they're back to Nazareth. Nazareth. And I jumped to Luke simply in order to fill that gap, to let us know what happened. They went to Bethlehem, then they went to Jerusalem. Now they're back in Nazareth. And that brings us to Matthew chapter 2, as we discussed in Sunday school this morning. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we continue then in the scriptures. And the Bible says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. We skip ahead by somewhere likely around two years, Right? to the point where Jesus is now a young child and wise men have come from the east, likely the area in and around Babylon, looking for the one who is born king of the Jews. And when we know that Matthew is written to prove this point, it, it makes little, it is of little surprise to us that Matthew is going to emphasize these wise men that had come from the east. So they said that they had seen a star in the east some astronomical event that had indicated to them that the king of the Jews had been born. And they came, they said, to worship him because they knew, as we mentioned in Sunday school again, likely from the prophecies of Daniel, that the one who would be king of the Jews would also be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That the king of the Jews would not just be the king of the Jews, but that as we read this morning, when he would arise and when he would shine, that the Gentiles would seek unto his light. That he would be king of kings and lord of lords, that he would be king over all peoples. That every knee would bow and every tongue would confess Jesus to be Lord. That this king, born of the Jews, would rule over them as well. And of the increase of his government and his kingdom, there would be no end, right? 
And it is here that we begin to see that the promises of Messiah are not just the promises of a savior, but the promises of a king and of a kingdom. The promises of a kingdom uh, of Messiah are the promises of a kingdom, and the promises of a kingdom are the promises of Messiah. The celebration of the birth of that small child on that day in Bethlehem was the celebration of the Savior, which would carry over, particularly when those wise men arrived, to a celebration of a king. A celebration of one who had the right to rule and one who would indeed rule. Verses 3 through 6. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel." So we continue in Matthew, we find that King Herod is very greatly troubled by the report of the biblical prophecy that might be unfolding in his time. The people are naturally then troubled as well. Herod is troubled because the people are religious, because the people are zealous, because leading that nation was a group of, uh, of Sanhedrin who were uh, dominated by a sect, an order called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were very, very zealous. And on top of that, there were uh, pockets of zealots throughout that region who were simply waiting for a king to rise up so that they can overthrow Rome. So Herod is naturally concerned. Being a delegated king under the authority of the occupying power of the region, Rome, he knew that a religiously motivated prophetic king would be a source of tremendous agitation in the land, if not outright war. So he asks the spiritual leaders, he asks the scribes, he gets his wise men together, and he says, where will this child be born? And they quote to him the prophecy of Micah 5, verse 2, which states that the ruler of the people would come out of Bethlehem of Judah, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Bethlehem and Ephrath. That these wise men did not know this, or that they, they knew this, that the wise men knew this themselves, indicates that they were well aware, not just of the, of the prophecies of Micah, but they were well aware of, of the, the messianic significance to them. We continue then to read in verses 7 through 11. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king... They departed, and lo, the star, which they saw in the east, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So Herod asks the wise men how long it had been since the star had appeared, indicating that the child had been born. We would find, if we were to continue in the text, and as we mentioned in Sunday school this morning, that they likely tell him a time period between one and two years previously that they had seen that star indicating the Messiah's birth. After which Herod sends them to Bethlehem, where the prophecies tell us Messiah would be born. And, they, and he requested that they tell him 
when they find Messiah, he'll let them do the legwork. Tell me when I find him that, as he says, I may worship him also. So the wise men depart, presumably headed toward Bethlehem, until that star appears again and redirects them, the scriptures tell us. And as Luke indicates, Mary and Joseph, having gone to Nazareth after the 40 days, redirects them to Nazareth. And when they arrived, the Bible says they entered the house where Mary and Jesus were, and they fell down and they worshipped him as king, presenting him with those kingly gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Frankincense and myrrh both being expensive perfumes used for any number of both luxuries and practical purposes at the time. But make no mistake, very costly gifts. And they were costly because they were for a king, a great king. This child was born in Bethlehem. This child was born of a virgin. This child was the Messiah of whom Isaiah had written in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Jesus is that king upon whom the shoulders of government would rest, who would be directly responsible for, for bringing unto the world something the world has never seen and can never achieve on its own. Peace. Oh, the world has tried for so long, has it not? Kings have tried. Nations have tried. Government bodies have tried. Revolts, revolutions, all in the name of peace. But it's never happened. But of the increase of this king's government and of the increase of this king's peace, there shall be no end. He will order it. He will establish it with judgment and justice. He will sit upon the throne of David even forever. And that is why the wise men took that long trip to find him. That is why they brought those kingly gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh and laid them at his feet. Because of the increase of his government and of his peace, there would be no end. They knew it. They believed it. They sought him out for it. It's also the reason that the nation of Israel responded to Jesus the way that they did, isn't it? When the national Israelite thought about Messiah, the idea of Messiah was not linked to a savior in their mind, was he? In, that, in, in the sense of spiritual savior. As a matter of fact, their entire purpose, the Pharisees' entire purpose was, we are going to make the nation so godly that Messiah cannot help but come. He was linked instead in their mind to political savior, to king. And this is not incorrect by any means. As we see even from the wise men, from the promises of prophecy, Messiah would be a great king. He would rule over the nations of this earth. The Gentiles would seek unto him. But Jesus came with a message that revealed something very important about the nature of the kingdom of Messiah. This kingdom would not only be a physical kingdom, it would be a spiritual kingdom as well. And to this end, there was a spiritual requirement needed in order to be a part of that kingdom. 
that in order to be a part of the physical nature of that kingdom, one had to be spiritually aligned with the king. Now, as I say this, this isn't actually a new message, is it? In fact, even in the book of Matthew, as we consider the prophecies as they unfold, the first prophecy mentioned is not prophecy of the king, it's a prophecy of the redeemer, that he would save his people from their sins. Then came the wise men, and the nature of Messiah as king is explored and is presented to the reader of Matthew. To this end, when Jesus came, the nation was looking for their king, but they were not looking for a redeemer. They were looking for a physical savior, a political savior, but they weren't looking for a spiritual savior. They didn't think they needed a spiritual savior because they believed the law had established them in righteousness. Thus, what they expected is that their righteousness having been established, the kingdom would come on this earth. But when Jesus came, we know he came with a very different message, didn't he? The nation heard the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but they failed to understand the first part of Jesus' message. They heard the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but they forgot that whole repentance part, right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They had forgotten the promises of Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, where God did not say, you will save yourself from your sins and then I'll become your king. He, where instead, God said in Ezekiel and in, and in Isaiah and in Jeremiah, I will save my people from their sins, right? He is the one that would give them a new heart. He is the one that would wash away their sins and cleanse them and remove their sins far from them. That though their sins were as scarlet, he would make them as white as snow. To this end, Jesus lived and labored, doing as Simeon prophesied he would in Luke chapter 1, verse 77, giving knowledge of salvation unto the people by the remission of their sins. And all who came to him did indeed find that remission of sins, did they not? All who came to that light would find in that light the healing in his wings. But in God's wisdom, Jesus was rejected as king. The nature of his kingdom being rejected because it was so different from what the nation of Israel expected. But not only different from what they expected, the kingdom that Jesus came offering was very different from the kind of kingdom they wanted, wasn't it? It's not just that it was a different kingdom from what they expected. It was a different kingdom from what they wanted. They wanted God to be their political savior, not their spiritual savior. They didn't want the spiritual part. They only wanted the political part. And Jesus, see, Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And the Lord saw the travail of his soul, and he was satisfied. That's propitiation. And just before that great sacrifice, where the king of nations gives his life for those who would be a part of his kingdom, he told the high priest of the nation of Israel in Matthew 26, verse 64, Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus tells the high priest on this day, you're going to kill me, and my next stop is the right hand of God. And I'm going to wait there until all of my enemies are made my footstool. And then? And then Jesus says, 
then you'll see me coming in the clouds of heaven. And it is here that we find our way into the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It is here that we find our way to the second advent of our Lord and Savior. It is here that we find our way into his glorious return when man will see him coming in the clouds of heaven. The significance of the babe in the manger, as we even explored this morning, is not necessarily the babe at all, is it? The significance of the babe in the manger is the light that came into the world. The significance of the babe in the manger is when that babe becomes a man and gives his life as a ransom for many. The significance of that babe in the manger is when that man ascends into heaven to sit at the right hand of God after raising from the dead three days later. The significance of those wise men which came to Jesus as a young child in Nazareth to worship the king is not that they found him. It's the fact that they correctly identified him as king. It's the fact that men have come from afar because they knew that this was the king of nations, the king of kings and the lord of lords. The significance of the kingly gifts is not that they were gifts, but that they were kingly in nature. And so we read in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 13. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth, both, he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. The day the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh were placed at the feet of that child was a day which existed in anticipation of this day in Revelation 19. Jesus will return in the clouds. And the Bible says that the nation of Israel will finally recognize Jesus to be their Messiah. And they will look upon him and they will mourn for him and they will believe on him. And then at that time and finally after all of these years, the nation of Israel will be spiritually positioned by grace through faith to receive that kingdom that they have longed for, to, to become a part of that kingdom because they have finally accepted their king. And we are co-heirs of those promises, aren't we? And we'll be there on that day. And we'll be a part of that kingdom. The wise men on that day worshiped Jesus for what he would become. Not just in Revelation 19, but even more so the day in Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshiped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Jesus will wash away their sin as God has always promised to do. Then Jesus will finally take his place and rule and reign in righteousness over the nation of Israel. Finally, as he promised them he would. And we, Christ's church, will be there too. And all who believe of every nation and of every tongue and of every tribe will live and reign with Christ for those thousand years. And what a great opportunity 
as we step into this season to remember the distinctions of the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to remember the distinctions of his childhood leading up to his ministry, leading up to his death, leading up to his burial and his resurrection and his ascension. A twofold distinction. First, the promise that the one named Jesus would save his people from their sins. The promise that this one named Jesus, as we considered this morning, would shine the light into the world, into the darkness of our hearts, and would redeem us from that very darkness. But make no mistake, there's a second distinction as well. That this one named Jesus would also be a great king. The king of kings the Lord of Lords. He would not just be the king of your heart, the king of my heart, the king of this assembly, but, he, but the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the uh, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And make no mistake that there's coming a day when the increase of his government and his peace will have no end. There's coming a day where he will sit and order upon the throne of David and he will establish it with judgment and with justice. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this thing. And as we celebrate and worship in this season, we don't just celebrate the birth of a child. We celebrate the birth of a Savior. And more than a Savior, we celebrate the birth of a King who is coming one day. We all know that the Christmas season has become something in society quite different and indeed quite opposed to the character of Christ and of his word. We are all aware that Jesus was not actually born on December 25th or anywhere near December 25th. We are all aware of the many Christian traditions that uh, constitute emerging between biblical truths and various other traditions from any number of other places. But may I encourage you within this season to focus your time, your energy, your, your focus upon these two distinctions of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because these two distinctions are drawn out so clearly in this time of memorial. The light that has entered the world, the light that we can be in this world as a reflection of Him, and the coming day when Jesus Christ will claim that throne and where all wrongs will be made right. There's a, time, there's a lot of wrongs out there, aren't there? It's a pretty evil world. There's coming a day when, it, when it'll be done. There's coming a day when that child who those wise men bowed before and laid those gifts in front of, who became a man, who preached a message of salvation, who died and bore our sins, who arose on the third day, who ascended unto his Father, will receive that kingdom. There's coming a day when every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess, where justice will be done, where righteousness will shine like the sun. And though today, thus far, is not that day, it is coming. 
because Jesus did come some 2,000 years ago. Because Jesus is that Messiah. He was born of that virgin in Bethlehem of Judah. He fulfilled the prophecies. He is that one. This is not a story that we study in this time. This is history that we study. We did not hear a story this evening in Matthew chapter 118 through 211. We read a historical account of the king. It isn't the history of a cute baby. It's the history just of a good teacher. It isn't just the history of amazing events. It's the history of what Paul calls in 1 Timothy the mystery of godliness. Remember we studied that a little while ago? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. What is that mystery? Well, number one, God was manifest in flesh. That's what we just studied. That's the history of this time. That's the memorial of this time, that God was manifest in flesh. Other times of year, we'll study that he was justified in the spirit and seen of angels and preached unto the Gentiles and believed on the world and received up into glory. But this memorial reminds us that God was manifest in flesh. He took on that flesh. He is coming again, and he is coming as king, who those wise men in the east worshipped and adored and sought unto. And so, in this time of year, we do as we sing together, O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. We adore him for what he has done, in that he has purchased our salvation through his own blood on the cross. We adore him for the light that has shined into this world, into the darkness of our hearts, and through which we can shine into the darkest recesses of the unbelief of this world. But we adore him as well for what he's going to do. We adore him for that day when the clouds will part, when he bursts forth in righteousness to establish that eternal kingdom. And so we echo those words that John records at the very end of his prophecy and revelation. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.